Our reading this morning will be taken from Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, the first four verses. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanoi, one of my brethren, came with men from Judea. And I asked them concerning the Jews, who has escaped, who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is all broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you. You've encouraged us by being here, and we hope we can encourage you. It's great to have the Richardson family and Paula with us. How wonderful it is to be able to serve God together, worship God together, and strive to reach out to others. And let's make sure that we always do everything that we can do to the glory of God. We are thankful that the team has returned home in El Salvador. We've had a wonderful week. You'll be hearing a lot more in the weeks to come uh, through a report. But I'll mention to you that there were 11 souls baptized into Christ, two restorations, and several others that uh, we left with very good studies underway. And so hopefully that number will simply increase from there and great good will be done. We appreciate the fact also that we were able to serve probably close to 2,000 patients during that time. And a lot more of those numbers will come in also. We appreciate so much the elders' uh, oversight and the support of this mission trip. We appreciate Buddy Pickler, Jack Farber for their tremendous leadership of this trip, and for everybody on the team. It's awesome to be with a group that's united, that loves each other, and that wants God to receive all the glory, and, uh, and just to see the Word magnified, the number of disciples multiplied, and God glorified. And what a tremendous blessing it is to simply be a part of that. I want to share with you quickly something that you already know, but it's worth mentioning. You know, we had individuals from several states on our mission trip. We were the host congregation, uh, but there were individuals from Alaska, California, Missouri, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Kentucky, Tennessee... And among these individuals, everybody's trying to get to know each other. And about the middle of the week, different ones would come up to me and say, Now, Phil, is Phil a part of your congregation? I say, Yeah. I said, Phil is our youth minister. I said, Hey, he's about the best youth minister I've ever seen. And they'd say, I know why you feel that way. He's amazing. I've never seen anybody that can do what he does. I wish all of you, I know we love and appreciate him for what he does here, I wish all of you could see him work in those conditions and in that environment. He definitely has a gift from God to touch the lives of young people. 
I think, in every culture. Uh, we're thankful for him. We're also thankful for Andrew. Uh, by, before I was even leaving for this El Salvador trip, I was receiving emails, contacts, hey, can I get copies of that sermon on the Da Vinci Code? Sure, be glad to. I didn't do them, but the man that, that did, I can get you in touch with him. Uh, we'd love to get his notes, etc. When I came back in, already from last night to this morning, heard so many say the tremendous job uh, that, that he did uh, over these past few weeks of uh, preaching and, and teaching. And of course, we know the tremendous job he does all the time in the song leading and throughout the daily responsibilities also. Love and appreciate these guys. And what a blessing it is uh, to be a part of where they work and to see the awesome work uh, that they do. Let's do continue, as already has been, uh, continue praying for the Winkler family. Uh, keep in mind that we also need to continue and support uh, Jacob Winkler. He lives locally. He's been visiting with us quite a bit, and Jacob is Matt's younger brother. And uh, he's visited with us a lot recently, and let's be sure and remember him in our prayers, and let's reach out to him and support him in every way that we can. Next Sunday does begin two services. What an opportunity we have to make the most of an opportunity that God gives us. We could look at this from various aspects. We could say and look and shoot holes in it. Or we could look at it and say, look, our elders have studied carefully for months and months and months to figure out what to do with what we have, with who we are, and the opportunity that God has given us and the potential that God has given us. And this is the very best decision that they could make at this time. When the elders and deacons and ministers met together, there was a great lengthy discussion about the same thing. And the deacons' input, overall, overall, the deacons' input uh, was, was very similar. Of course, there's always discussion from both sides. And I hope you understand and know that, that no one in our leadership is naive to say that this is a perfect plan. But we do believe, our elders believe, that this is a plan that can reach the most for the glory of God. And I hope that you'll continue to be prayerful and that you'll continue to be optimistic that we won't have families, as just a couple of weeks ago, that, that literally walked out. Or when one of our deacons invited a family and moved into the area, hey, we'd love for you to worship at Mount Juliet. And this happened just a few weeks ago. And the answer was, no, we've heard about your overcrowding problem. We won't be coming there. That's the situation that we're in now. And isn't it wonderful that we have a solution? may not be what all of us would say would be the perfect world, but what a wonderful thing that we have, have a solution where we're not turning souls away and where people are not saying, I don't want to go to church. Let's make sure that, that we look at this and make it all that it can be for the glory of God. I want to encourage you to think of something here, and I'm not trying to play mind games with you. I'm just speaking the facts here. The elders have asked us to come together four times a week. They ask us to come together every Sunday morning in Bible class. They ask us to come together every Sunday morning for worship. They ask us to come together every Sunday night for worship, and they ask us to come together every Wednesday night for Bible class. When I hear individuals say, we're never going to be together again, I can't help wonder, do you not come to Bible classes? Do you not come to evening worship? Because I'm with the church four times a week. And the elders are only asking us to make an option of one time out of the four. So I want to encourage you, if, if you really have bought into the deception that 
we're not going to be together anymore. Come more often and you'll find out that we're together a lot during the week. Uh, we're together real often and it's wonderful to be together during the week. And so what a, what a wonderful opportunity we have to say the community, we care about you. We're going to make room for you. We've got a place for you. Come and learn about the Lord. Vision. Vision is an interesting thing. It carries a lot of new terms, but yet it's a very old concept. A little more than two weeks ago, I was driving into Nashville at about 5 o'clock in the evening, and, and the traffic was pretty heavy going into Nashville, not nearly as heavy as the traffic coming out, but cars surrounded me, concrete barrier on the left side, a car immediately in front of me, a car immediately behind me, and cars lined up to the right of me. And it was a downpouring rain, and we were probably doing about 50 miles an hour. And I went under one of the overpasses that were under construction. I'm sure that in time there will be a guard, uh, a gutter system, draining this water out. But that particular day, there was no gutter system. What I did not realize is that we would literally be driving under a heavy waterfall that would be falling straight upon the windshield. I'm not talking about a heavy rain, a solid stream of water. It just so happens that I went under that stream at the same time my wipers were on the way up. Needless to say, it broke my wipers. I know the last sight that I saw was a concrete barrier to my left. A vehicle immediately on my front bumper. Might have been my fault, but it was there. Vehicle right behind me and cars lined up to the side... And I saw nothing else for about five seconds. And I kept looking for those taillights, thinking, I've got to see this. Because even after going under the waterfall, it was still raining hard. And then that feeling, what do I do? I've just lost my vision. Am I getting too close to the left? What if that car slows down in the front? What if I jab my brakes? And the car hits me from the rear. We all appreciate vision. Sometimes we just have to lose it momentarily to really appreciate it. This morning, I want us to think about something that we'll think about for a few lessons. And it is whether or not we really are seeing where we're going. There's a lot being spoken about in the world of leadership today as to vision. And it needs to be because a person cannot be an effective leader without having vision. But I want you to understand that when most that's being written today about leaders having vision, we're overlooking something very important if we think that every person shouldn't have a vision. Every one of us needs to think about where we're going. Not only where we're going to spend in eternity, our longest side of vision, but we need to think about what is the next decade going to hold for us? What's the next five years going to be for us? What's the next few months going to be? And surely something greater can come about in my life than what is happening at this time, all for the glory of God. It's not what can I, I boost myself into becoming. It's what can I do as a servant, as a child of God, as a Christian. What can I do? What can I become? What can I become a part of that's far greater than just myself? We've had read for us so capably a few moments ago a passage out of Nehemiah, one of the greatest studies in the Bible as we study a man with vision. As we look at Nehemiah, you saw the fact in verse 2 
that Nehemiah was a man that was concerned about what was happening back in Jerusalem because in the exile he was taken away. Now he was the cupbearer for the Persian king. But yet he had a great amount of concern for God's people, for God, and for God's city. Now some have debated whether or not the brother that he's asking here is a brother simply as a Jew, or if he truly is a physical brother. And there's a pretty strong argument made that it might have even been his physical brother. But you can imagine this individual passes through his area, and he is almost as if he's saying, wait, talk to me. There's something on my heart. I have a great concern. Tell me, what is the condition of the city where my fathers are buried? What's the condition of the people there? What's the condition of the temple? What's the condition of the wall? You can imagine how he wanted to know about all of these things. And then the answer that was given to him in verse 3, they said, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. You see, Zerubbabel had already went back and tried many years earlier to start building back the temple and getting Jerusalem, if you will, back on her feet. Ezra had gone back just prior to Nehemiah trying to work especially on getting the law underway and getting parts of the temple complete. I guess we're safe to say that neither one had been totally successful and maybe not even very successful at all to any degree. And then we have Nehemiah. He hears the condition. Now note this. He believes in his mind that something can be better. He sees what others cannot see. He has a vision that at this point in time is only in his mind. And before the story's over, he goes back and shares it with all of the people. The people buy into that same vision. And before it's over, the people are coming back together strong again. The city of Jerusalem is slowly being rebuilt. But especially the wall is complete in just 52 days. Friends, please join me in a study for a few lessons to think, what is it in my life? with what God has given me, that I can help make things a little better. What do you envision about two services? Don't you envision something that you can do that will make that a little better? What is it that you envision in just a couple of weeks about Friends Day? Surely there are friends already that you could name, form that list, Begin praying for them sincerely and fervently. Perhaps even like Nehemiah, begin fasting for them. And then give those invitations. Be serious about that invitation. Urge them to meet you, to sit with you, to eat lunch with you. What is it that we can do short-term, but even long-term in our vision to make a difference? I want to give you quickly, and this isn't nearly as important as what we've been studying, I want to give you something from a secular side of the definition of vision. And go two screens forward. And we will see here what one lady, Rita Lasse, says as she is considered one that 
uh, creates vision and writes about vision and etc. And again, I'm simply offering you this as something to think about. I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that what we're looking at here is, is uh, because she says it, it's right, because she says it, it's biblical. It's just interesting to think about this word of visioneering. It's the idea of an engineer and the idea of one with vision. An engineer is one that manages the daily affairs and does so in an effective way. Now see if you see the distance in where we're looking. An engineer manages the daily affairs, but yet one with vision sees where you are going. And so you put the two words together and we form a new word, visioneering, but yet it's an old concept. It's an individual that manages the affairs of their daily life, but it's not in just some kind of random sort of way. They have a vision of where they're going, and so the way they handle the affairs of today are all to keep them on target to reach that vision. Why do you live the godly life that you live today? Because you have a vision that you want to spend eternity with God one day, and that vision affects the way you live today. And so as we think about this, here's some few things that she mentions about people with vision. Number one, they see the world from a different perspective. Friends, we're living in a world that's in a rut. It's a fast-paced rut. It's a materialistic rut oftentimes. And we can describe it in many other ways. But it's a rut where everything is that same course day after day. One with vision stops about everything and says, Wait, I'm going to decide what I do today to see if it will help me reach the vision that I have laid out before me. Just yesterday, someone asked me if I would make a commitment to be involved in something that was wonderful. Something that pulls at me, but yet I had to give an answer at that moment to say, I want to think about it. Because I do not want to invest my time in something that's not going to help me reach the vision that's laid out ahead. We only have 24 hours a day. Whatever you're doing with today probably is either done or not done because of where you see yourself in 10 years, where you see yourself in, in 20 years, where you see yourself for an eternity. Why do we live in a world that's in a rut? They're fast-paced. They're random. Because we live in a world with no vision. Either they don't know or they don't care where they're going. Notice the second thing that she says here. They're also willing to leave their comfort zone. If we're going to grow, most growth takes place outside the comfort zone. Number three, they're willing to overlook obstacles. They're not willing to be easily stopped. Number four, they have biocular vision. We've already talked about seeing the distance, but seeing the day-to-day -day at the same time. Number five, they have design and they execute needed strategies to accomplish things. Number six, they're creative. Why creativity? Because anyone can look at what has just happened and react to it. Get this, this is a huge point. What does a Christian do? A Christian looks ahead to what God's will in their life, and they are proactive. If we're stuck in a rut, we're always reactive. But yet as Christians, we're supposed to know where we're going. We're supposed to make decisions in a proactive way. I don't have to wait and see what's the reaction of all my friends. What's the popular thing to do? Let me take a vote. No, we can be proactive. We know what the Lord's will is. And finally, we have to be willing. Willing to risk. Willing to love. Willing to serve. Willing to sacrifice, etc. Let's go now to something much more important than just this definition because this is the word of our Lord. Let's look at Ephesians, the second chapter, and verse 10. 
Ephesians, the second chapter in verse 10. Here we see in Ephesians 2 and 10, God's vision for individuals. Notice he says in Ephesians 2 and 10, Paul writes and he says, For we are His workmanship. Notice that phrase. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Do you realize that what that verse is telling us is that we are God's vision? Do you fulfill God's vision? God's created you for a purpose. God has given you specific abilities. God has given you certain opportunities. Now, could you honestly, if God came down right this moment, and you and God could just have a ten-minute conversation, would God say, yes, when you were born, I gave you these abilities. Throughout your life, I've given you these opportunities. And I am so thankful for the way that you have fulfilled the vision that I had for your life. He says right here, we are His workmanship. Do we live up to how He designed us? Now, when we look at created in Christ Jesus, that's not just talking about our physical existence there. So when we think about this, we need to think about our beginning. Not just our beginning that goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning through the creation, which is very important to understand. But here, he's talking about our beginning that's in Christ Jesus. Now, do you remember from other passages when we began in Christ Jesus? You remember from Galatians, the third chapter and verse 27? You remember from Romans 6 and 3? We were baptized into Christ Jesus. So here's a person that's repented of sins. They said, I want to change my life. I want to start serving God. And I want, I want to stop serving self. And I want to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. But notice, it's into Christ. So when we are raised up out of that water, we are now in Christ. Now, as 1 John 1 and 7 would tell us, we're walking in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from our sins. Notice what's happened. At that point, we are now in Christ. Now our beginning of our spiritual life is induced and now we make the decision. Now I know the cost of my beginning. For you and I to be the Lord's workmanship, it costs the blood of Jesus Christ. How important is it for me to be used in the Lord's service? The Lord was willing to pay with His blood for us to be able to do that. Now notice the purpose. He says there in that verse, we're created to do good works. Now we need to emphasize that the two verses previous to this tells us that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. When we're baptized into Christ, we don't deserve salvation. That's simply the point in time. That's the place that God says, I'll shed my grace upon you there. When you submit to my will, it's at that point in your journey that I'll forgive you of your sins. My grace will come in contact with your life at that point. And then when you rise, here's what I want you to do. I want you to use your life for good. I want you to be a servant of mine to do the good. So now we know our beginning, what it costs. We know our purpose, what the Lord wants us to be involved in. And notice the definition, the destination, as he says, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. I know in one sense the destination is heaven. But there's also a sense that our destination is to be in Christ. 
Now, we're not extending the invitation at this very moment. But just a few days ago, I asked a man, I want to ask you the most important question anyone could ask you. Are you saved? And he was a type of man that when he got nervous, he grinned and kind of laughed, that nervous laugh. And at first he sat there solemn, and then he started grinning, and then very nervous. He laughed and he said finally, that's a very difficult question to answer. He didn't want to admit his present destination. We studied for a good while, the end of the study, asking the same question. He's going to continue studying, and hopefully the preacher there will continue to follow up with him as his wife and teenage daughter already decided their destination. They've already been baptized into Christ. They've already decided, as it says here, to walk in them. Talking about in the ways of the Lord. What's the ways of the Lord? Here in this verse, it's doing good. It's being in Christ and doing the good that God created us to do. But friends, every one of us here, it's not just enough to say one day there's going to be a day of judgment, but I've got to face up to the fact. I've made my decision today. I've claimed a destination today. In just a moment, we'll sing an invitation song, and I've decided today what road I'm on. And thank God that I can make the decision to change my destination right now and say, you know, I don't want to be on that road that's leading away from God. I want to be on the road that's leading to God. I want to be on the road that's in Christ. I want to be on the road that does good works. I want to be on the road that says, I know what my salvation is worth. I know what it is to begin with Christ. I know what my purpose is. I know what my destination is. Let's go back to Nehemiah and let's close with these thoughts. In Nehemiah, the first chapter, we'll point out just a few things to pull this together here. As you're turning there, I want to tell you about a passage we, we have to skip over for time's sake. In Romans, the 12th chapter, we're told that every one of us are given gifts from God that vary one from another. We're all a part of one body, but we're many members. And he lists about six or seven various gifts that he gives to different people, and we all don't have the same. But he says in there, use the gifts. The Lord has given us specific gifts. He's given us specific abilities because He wants us to use them. And when you use yours and I use mine and the people sitting around you use theirs, we are all working not in competition with each other, not against each other. We're working together for the glory of God so that He can be magnified, so that we can be strengthened and edified, and so that the lost can be reaped. That has to be our vision. In other words... What am I individually? I'm one created in Christ, His workmanship, to do good. What are we collectively? Collectively, we're many members working in one body. Someone does not understand the Scriptures when they say, oh, we've got a great ministry here, and I can't believe in a congregation of seven or 800 people that, that we only have 30 working in this ministry. Well, do we understand the Scriptures? The Scripture says real clear that not everyone's going to have the same abilities, the same gifts. 
God designed it so that we wouldn't have 800 doing this, 800 doing this, 800 doing this, and then over here is a multitude of things that need to be done, but there's nobody with the ability to do those things. God's the one that designed it that says, hey, I've given all of you various abilities so that all of the Lord's work could be done. Vision. Do I see how God has created me? Do I see how God has created the church? But we have to see it this way. We have to see it not only for what exists today, but what can. That's the importance of Nehemiah. When no one else could see a wall built back, Nehemiah in his mind could see the wall built back. There may not be others that can see what you can see yourself doing in life. But if you believe God has given you the abilities and He's given you the opportunities, you see what God can do for you. This lesson this morning is really an introduction of the lessons to come. I want to close by asking you this that ought to affect all of the other lessons. It ought to think, affect the way we think about Nehemiah. I'm not suggesting to you that I'm the only one that's ever thought of this, but I am saying to you I've never heard anyone else say this and it kind of bothers me. We speak about Nehemiah as if he was a wall builder. In other words, that's the greatest thing you could contribute to Nehemiah. He's the great wall builder. Can you imagine a spiritual man like Nehemiah wanting to be remembered as a wall builder? Can you imagine the, the eldership at Mount Juliet saying, I want to serve my life in, as in the, the office of an elder. I want to give my heart, my soul, and my time. And I hope the only thing I'm remembered for is that brick building that was built on the side of 1940 Mount Juliet Road. Can you imagine that? What is wrong with us when the only thing we speak about Nehemiah is we speak about a structure that he had built. When in the first four verses... What made him cry was when he heard the condition of the people. They were distressed. They were in reproach. You remember in the Old Covenant, Jerusalem was God's city. That was God's wall that was torn down. It wasn't just a structure. It was about God and about God's people. And we go over to the fourth chapter in verse 14, and we see the people getting nervous because the enemy surrounds. And you remember what Nehemiah said to the people there in 4 and 14? He said to them, Remember the Lord great and awesome, and fight for your brethren. We're not here to build buildings. We're not even here to add numbers for numbers' sake. We're here to remember our Lord and fight for the brethren. Stand up for each other. Link arms together. Tell one, as Nehemiah had to say, you hold the tool and work, and the brother holds the weapon and protects them. Nehemiah wasn't about a physical structure so that he could gloat. Nehemiah was about God, and he saw the potential to do something for God. He saw the potential to do something for God's people that at that time apparently no other man on earth could see. Once he finally becomes the governor, he did something that's unheard of, unthinkable. He wouldn't take the provisions of the governor. 
He fed himself by his own means. He wouldn't even claim the land and the territories that governors usually claim because he wanted the people to know generosity. In the 8th chapter, they didn't know the law of God. He sends Ezra out and all the people stand up all day to hear the law. The people begin to weep. They had forgotten the law. They even had to have it explained to them because they couldn't understand it. But do you see the picture? What did Nehemiah want? The wall's complete. Oh, Nehemiah's work's over because he was just the man that built walls. No. The wall's built and Nehemiah's saying, people, we've got to know God. We've got to know God's will. Come together. And then I can assure you this. You could ask Nehemiah, what's the hardest thing you've ever done in your life? And he wouldn't mention the wall. He would probably mention the 13th chapter where he said, I had to go out and tell the people they were going to have to leave their pagan wives. I literally had to pull their hair to get them to listen. I told them their daughters couldn't marry pagan men. The day of crying and bawling that that was. Yes, Nehemiah built a wall. But friends, much more than that, Nehemiah loved God. He loved God's people. And he could see something better in their future than what they could see. And in that, he was one great man with vision. Have you ever read the last sentence in the book of Nehemiah that records of himself? I don't think you would see on the tombstone of Nehemiah, I built the wall. Instead, I believe you would see this last line. It's in the 13th chapter in verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. Remember me for good. Don't remember I built back a wall. Remember that in my life, I could always see things better than what they were today. And I always wanted to help people to reach greater heights of good than what they could today. Those of us that travel to El Salvador, we go on stateside campaigns, or we go to the Ukraine, we go because we believe that people can have a better life tomorrow than they have today. Mamas and daddies, listen. Good, godly mamas and daddies believe that spiritually there's something a little better out in the future than what there is today. My children can know God better tomorrow than this year. My children can know God better as teenagers than what they know them in elementary school. My children can be faithful to God as young adults. I believe that. I want to move them towards that. And that vision helps me to know what to do today because I know the direction I want my family to go. And we could say that for our own self. We could say it for the life of our, fam- of our church family. Friends, we can't drive blind. We have to have vision. We have to know where we're going to set our affections on things above, Colossians 3 and 1. We have to set our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Where are you traveling? 
Do you need to change destinations? Do you need to move from the road that's leading towards Satan to the road that's leading towards God? Do you need to be baptized into Christ? Are you living every day to do good works? Do you see something greater in the way you use your life for God's glory? Let's make sure that we're real, that we're passionate, and that we are determined if God gives us opportunity, we'll make a difference for Him on this earth. Not by our power, our strength, but by what He's given us. Need to be baptized into Christ, or if you need to ask prayers for forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing. I am I no more.